Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. Brad Winters, welcome back a third time. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here with you all. It's fun. We're going to talk about your tips. You've been accumulating secret rules, these, Eric. Secret, secret oh, rules. No longer. No longer secret rules. We're going to reveal some of these. Tell us about the origin of this document. I used to have a friend who uh, would always say that the purpose of my life is to serve as a warning to others. And I know what he meant. And that as a young lawyer, I would see things and hear things and be told things and make mistakes. And uh, I started to write them down. Good advice I had received, good things I had seen done, mistakes I had made or narrowly avoided, things that I had learned, waiting tables as a waiter, um, working in a warehouse or being a fraternity president in college. And some of those lessons applied to my life as a lawyer. And I wrote them down, kept a list. And then uh, when I got into training associates at firms and talking with law young lawyers, I put them into this article slash booklet slash book of 48 secret rules of lawyering. And some of them are a little silly, I think, to my 65-year-old ear now, but I wrote it back, I think, around 2000. Some of them are a little dated. I think there's a reference to overhead projectors and mimeograph machines, but I think they're still relevant. And that's what good advice is. It lasts. So, Brad, one of the things you and I were talking about before the session, the whole idea of you don't know what you don't know and how dangerous that can be in our profession Lawyers constantly are in my office asking, and they should be, asking me about issues and cases or how to handle things. And they'll come into my office with a case, tell me the facts of the case, and they have one particular issue. And I'll recognize two or three other things that probably are going to go wrong that they weren't even thinking about. And it's the whole thing. It's the idea of you don't know what you don't know. And here's the thing. It's life. There are a lot of things that you'll never know until they come up and appear or bite you or whatever. I've given this, these 48 secret rules to our law clerks consecutively when they come in. We have 10 or 12 law clerks every year, and I give it to them as mandatory reading. I love <laughs> the advice in here. They're specific, but they're also broad concepts. And I think if you look at the broad concepts, they'll keep you out of most trouble, get you doing the right thing and getting you on the right path, even though you don't know that that's what you're doing. Well, everybody needs a mentor or if you're like me, I went from high school straight into college, straight into law school, straight into a work environment. I had never really worked in an office ever. I didn't know anything about being a lawyer, but I didn't know anything about being an employee. I didn't know about being a professional. I didn't know on day one that I was both subordinate to the people that hired me and uh, functioning superior to the staff that had been assigned to help me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't. And um, you observe and you watch and soak in as much as you possibly can. But I thought it wouldn't hurt to write down a few palm against the forehead things that I'll save the unembarrassed from becoming the freshly embarrassed. I should probably mention that we have received a number of emails from people who work on the defense side who have asked, hey, when are you going to have a defense attorney on? And I know you're a mediator now, but you have 30 years of experience at a defense firm. And I know some of these are more geared toward defense attorneys. This is your day. For those of you who wrote those emails, <laughs> this is a chance for you to know that we're not ignoring you. Yeah, there's a, a section in there about timesheets, which I know there's a population of folks who've never touched one. What about timesheets? What about them? I haven't filled one out in 30 years, Brad. Well, you're probably out of practice, John. The cardinal principle of timesheets to me is, well, after unvarnished truth, is that the description of what you did has to be consistent with the amount of time you wrote down. 
And that may seem obvious, but I've seen some whoppers. And I had a couple of examples in the book, but a timesheet entry has got to make sense, not only objectively, but it's got to make sense to the people who are going to see it. And it's important if you're going to be in a firm where timesheets are kept, that you understand the process. Where does it go once it leaves your hands? Once it goes into the big sausage machine, you need to know what's going to happen to it and who's going to see it. And ultimately, it's going to reach the eyes of a client somewhere. And when the client sees it, you know, you want to communicate that I worked three hours at whatever my hourly rate was, and you got three hours of value. And you know that by looking at the description of what I did in those three hours. And so it's not a matter of gilding the lily or overstating. It's a matter of accurately stating, completely accurately stating, because if you spent three hours, you weren't just booking a conference room. You know, you did something. Tell us what it was. I divide my life into before and after one particular time entry. This is when I worked for a defense firm. I was working on an appellate brief, and before filing it, I spent one more hour checking for proofreading, making sure the phrases were right and the citations. So I billed one hour proofreading, you know, final edits to the brief and submitted it. Okay, so like a month later, it was disputed by the insurance company, which said, we do not pay for you to correct your mistakes. And they, they did not give up. They didn't give up. We had to cut an hour of that. You should have just given them the old draft. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said it right there, Eric. Your timekeeping changed right after that. The purpose of the book and the purpose of this uh, third installment of our visit here today is that we learn as we go along, and sometimes we learn the hard way. And there are mistakes that would ordinarily be learning mistakes, except they're so serious, you're not going to come back from them. And there's opportunities for that in your first days of practice when it comes to things like confidentiality and the ethics rules. You know, you can step on your poncho, fall face first, and not recover. I mean, literally lose your job, but not recover the confidence of the people you work for or set yourself back so far with the client that they take their business elsewhere. Happens. Happens all the time. So, Brad, we're not going to be able to go through all 48, but a couple of them I want to touch on. The first one you list is return your phone calls and emails now. What is that about? My point there is, is the kind of service and the level of service that people paying these rates or hiring our firm expect. Client calls, you got to return it. Client emails, they expect an email return. But more importantly, as a young lawyer, your clients, including the people you work for, the partners you work for, because I consider them clients, are waiting to see what's going on, waiting to see how you're going to do. Clients are waiting for documents to be finished or results to be achieved or trials to happen. And the lawyers you work for are looking for the final draft for their consideration or indications of how you're doing. And it's such an important positive clue slash cue about yourself and the work you're probably doing and the quality of the work you're probably putting together and the quality of the person you are if you're responsive quickly, I mean, we've all done this where you've sent an email out, you're up late, it's two in the morning, I'm going to send an email over to you and you'll see it in the morning and they respond instantly. There's an impact to that. And if a client or you know, a potential client were to send you an email saying, hi, we met here, I have an issue, can you give me a call sometime? And you don't return it for two days, they're putting together an image of you based on that clue. Whereas if you return it in two minutes, they're putting together a much better image. So this is one of those rules in the book where it's important to do because clients deserve this level of service. But I think it's also to your advantage in terms of starting to create the right image of yourself to the people who have been kind enough to hire you, as well as the clients who have been kind enough to engage you. I like the way you describe that. Your clients might not appreciate your esoteric analysis of 
you know, the nine points on whether a case has got improper venue. But they can understand that you return their phone call promptly. You ask clients, give me some complaints about your lawyer. What don't you like about your lawyer? What do you like about past lawyers? And they'll all talk about response time. Occasionally, we'll get a call from somebody who isn't happy with their lawyer. And they want to fire their lawyer and hire us. And I'll first ask them, what's the issue? And it's almost always they won't return my calls. I can't talk to them. They're not available. A lot of times it's somebody I know who's a very good lawyer. They're just not returning the calls. And I will tell the client, look, they're a good lawyer. They're busy. Call back and ask to schedule a time to talk to them. Okay. And I might, if I know the lawyer well enough, pick up the phone and say, hey, look, you need to give this client a call. It's easy. You can't take calls when they come in. We all know that you're in trial, whatever. But somebody can return the call. Your assistant can return the call. Somebody else at the end of the day. That's what I'll do at the end of the day is I'll return calls. George Fitzsimmons, who you know, he was my mentor. I worked with him. And he said, you're in the office. We were in the office a lot on the weekends, Sundays, Saturdays, whatever file we're working on. He said, that's a great time on a Sunday afternoon when you're working on somebody's file to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, it's me, John. I'm in here working on your file. I'm just calling to see how you're doing. And I mean, that's like solid gold. First of all, you're working on their file. But, you know, I got news for everybody listening. You don't need to be a great lawyer to have people think you're a great lawyer. Just return their calls. Just return their calls. I was a journalism major for a while and I took a reporting class. And one of the exercises was uh, there's an accident, a bus and a car, a school bus. Nobody hurt. Write the lead. And, you know, the professor went around the class and everybody had an idea and none of them were any good. And the professor said, here's the lead. 30 students escape serious injury. It was a fender bender, nothing happened. And the point was, sometimes that's news. You need to report to the client, there's nothing going on in this case. Yeah. Because certainly on the defense side, they're getting bills and they're seeing the bills. And if you're not keeping them up to date on what's actually happening in the course of a lawsuit, they're assuming nothing's happening. If there's just a period where nothing's happening, you got to call them and say, just checking in with you. I just want to tell you that there has been a deposition in uh, three weeks. The next one's scheduled this day. Here's where we are. And sometimes the fact there's no news is news. Eric, you go with the next rule. Well, I would go with rule number three. The only thing worse than bad news is unexpected bad news. Well, that rule makes me a little sad because this is one of the things I think we were talking about in episode one. This is a great piece of advice I got in a place that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, a face-to-face meeting with uh, Jack Musgrave, one of the partners sure. that trained yeah. me many years ago. I'd missed a hearing because I hadn't put it on my book. And I finally came in and told Jack and through the conversation, he said, you know, that's okay. We'll fix it now because you handled it quickly. Because if an order had been entered and I'm finding out that you two weeks ago had missed a hearing, this would have been a different matter completely. And that's where uh, I think he uttered the words uh, in those exact words. The only thing worse than bad news is unexpected bad news. Keep the client alerted. Manage expectations. If the case is going bad, don't say it's going good. Always err on the side of more information. And the bad news won't be unexpected if it's So bad. one of your rules is about good news, too. There's no news like good news, but share the credit. Well, great men are generous with praise. And if a lot of people in the firm were involved, send a note to uh, the partner thanking the paralegals and legal assistants and uh, associates and the other folks who helped you achieve this great result. I would frequently prepare notes to uh, the partner's clients for the partner's signature. If we had won a motion, you know, I wasn't going to call the client and ballyhoo it and say what a great job and how it went and everything. I would slow down, think for a second prepare a note or a letter in those days for the client, which would be for the partner's signature and report the good news and thank anybody who worked 
at the client's place of business for their cooperation and great spirit and support. You are always better off spreading the good news and the praise as thinly as possible to as many people as you can share it with. How about number seven? Write with power, clarity, and precision. Yeah. If you're writing, you, know, you want to take a couple of words out of every sentence, a couple of sentences out of every paragraph, a couple of paragraphs off of every page, and a couple of pages out of every section of your brief or your letter or your memo. Less is more when it's on paper. And I see all the time, as E.B. White, I think, says, just unnecessary words, just clutter. Every great lawyer I know thinks in outline. Their head organizes things in an outline form. And if it's simpler, don't even bother with complete sentences. I mean, know your audience, write for the right audience, but get rid of clearly and moreover and howevers. And you know, every sentence could use two less words. Great writer is one of the great compliments that a client can give you or a, a partner can say about you. You know, you mentioned typography earlier, and I have a book called Typography for Lawyers. And that's something that's sometimes overlooked about how important it is to have the product be beautiful. You know, have the fonts be right, have the spaces, don't cram things in unnecessarily. I'm going to read just a couple of phrases from this book because I love how he describes it. It's a lawyer who wrote the book about typography. He said, typography matters because it helps conserve the most valuable resource you have as a writer, the reader's attention. Attention is the reader's precious gift to you. If you fail to be a respectful steward of that gift, it will be revoked. And once the reader revokes the gift of attention, you've achieved only the lowest form of writing. That's like Zen. Yeah. That's good. Well written. Yeah. He actually has one more line. He says, yeah, you scattered some words across some pages, but your reader disappeared. Well, I think we underestimate sometimes the virtue of sort of storytelling in like appellate briefs and the really high-end legal stuff. You know, judges and clerks, their attention is losable as anybody else's is. But I see some extraordinary writing as a mediator. Some of the mediation materials I see and the summary judgment materials that I'll go to to prepare for a mediation, the difference between great writing and not great writing is not only visible and palpable, but it has an impact on the credibility of the writer. I mean, I am more inclined to be impressed with a brilliantly written brief, regardless of what the law might be. I saw Justice uh, Roberts once say that you want my attention, don't use up to the page limit. And I think it was in response to a question, give us one piece of great advice on writing. He said, don't use all the pages you have allotted to you. Make it condensed, make it concentrated, have impact. And it makes sense. If you don't have an answer, at least have a plan. There's a story there. When I was a young lawyer, I got a call from a partner who was in trial and he said, I'm coming back after trial. Stay late because I got a research problem for you. So he came back and he said, I got to get this into evidence. Can you come up with a way to get this into evidence? And I said, all right. So he went home and it was already dark and I went to work and worked till, you know, way after midnight, prepared a really good memo, really good. I remember it was great, but it said he couldn't get it in. And uh, he and I met at 7.30 the morning before trial, and I walked in, and he was there, and he said, what do you got? And I said, here it is. And he said, tell me what it says. He said, well, you can't get it in. I remember him pushing it to the side with his head down. He says, the other side will tell me I'm wrong for free. What am I paying you for? <laughs> and I remember fighting back tears because it was so painful and so true. I didn't offer anything. I didn't bring any value. I, what the hell? I gave him a legal memo that says, sorry. It could have had one word on it. I should have had a plan, another idea. 
you know, I don't have the answer you want, but here's a thought. Maybe you could do it this, and maybe you could come up with some, instead of this piece of evidence, perhaps, you know, in the case there's anything. Again, that reveals not only I'm bringing value, but I hate to lose. And losing is not just an expression in the litigation end of the business. It applies in the corporate side, too, because if you don't complete the deal within the uh, projected cost for the work performed, you're losing. If you don't get the uh, transaction closed by the deadline date that was given to you, you're losing. And so this desire to win, however you define win, is, I think, uh, a quality that all lawyers, especially young ones, want to exude and have. What great advice. I mean, that has come up with me with younger lawyers again and again, where they'll come in and tell me about all the problems we have with the case. <laughs> I said, if there weren't any problems with it, we wouldn't have it. That's what <laughs> lawyering is called. We solve problems. We come up with solutions. We provide ideas, answers. Absolutely. Great stuff. So, Brad, this is one that is absolutely timeless. Never send an angry letter or email today. Yeah. You have the ability to hit the send button and end your career. The speed and irretrievableness of things. I mean, we've all did that. I like to recall. I've never seen that. I'd like to recall something work, an outlook. I mean, once it's out there, man, it's out there. And it's worse when you send a bad note and then I get a bad note from somebody that I know they didn't mean to send. And then I get a note that tried to get it back and it makes it even worse. And no, it is irretrievable. The advice there is probably a little dated, but it's only uh, because of the technology. So don't send an angry letter right now as opposed to today, which I think is the rule. This problem is you know, not limited to lawyering. You know, Twitter is filled with people who have lost a career or incurred massive damage because they hit that button. There have been instances that we're both familiar with where somebody has sent something out there five years previously in a context that's not even, you know, it's just putting stuff out there where it's come back to bite them. It's out there, it's in writing, and it ain't going away. Well, and we speak for people. We speak for our firm, and we speak for our clients. You've heard this advice. Everybody has made the mistake, but now that you're a lawyer and you've moved from law school to lawyer status, you've got to slow down. Before you hit that send button, a million alarms should go off and double checks and read everything carefully. But if it's sent in the heat of the moment, give it an hour and you'll never regret that you did. I've also got to do the check on my own. I know this goes into one of your other rules. I hate finding typos in anything I send out. Well, and if you're angry, there's going to be a typo in there because you're going to be banging on the keys. And somewhere else in the book, I know I say this, but every lawyer knows how to fight. The good ones know when to fight. Clients don't want to see that you're making it worse. We are subject to the same rule that doctors are governed by, first do no harm. And if you get into a lawsuit, you got to deal with the lawsuit. But, you know, you don't want to escalate it by creating a fight with the other lawyer that's, you know, going to be unnecessarily expensive and distracting and could be avoided if I just kept my cool. So, Brad, when is, is your book out? I wrote the first version of it like 20 years, 20 years ago. ago. I've never sold a copy. So how can people get it if they want to get it? I think I send it to you in Word. They can call you. Okay. And I know you return your phone calls, John. Promptly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to, have at it. No, that, never, that'd be great. Because we're, not, we're not going through all of them, but I will tell you, one is just as good and as important as the next. I'm looking at number 24. Your assistant can make you or break you or both. Yeah. And young lawyers, you will find it out because everybody comes to work with two universes, the universes of things they have to do and the vast universe of things they could do. 
And you want every one of your colleagues, whether it's a lawyer or a staff member or a subordinate or a superior, you want everybody in the organization getting into that big universe during the course of the day. And if I'm doing something foolish, if I have an assistant who's been a paralegal or a legal secretary, as we used to call it, or an admin in a law firm for 20 or 25 years, I will thank them profusely if they come in and say, hey, you don't want to do this. Here's the way I've seen it done before. If I can have that person on my team rooting for me, covering me, watching my back, I am much better off as opposed to being a jerk and having somebody you know, involved back when we used to have some people doing our typing. I guess it still happens sometimes. With, well, if that's the way you want it, that's the way I'll do it. Knowing it's not the way it should be done or not the best way to do it. That all falls, again, into the general heading of don't be a jerk. And that was already true when you were in law school. And I'll tell you that in my career, every important client I ever got came directly or indirectly from somebody I met or knew in law school. And that's still true. Everybody you meet and encounter is a potential future colleague, a potential future client. Being a jerk, there's no upside to it. You're always auditioning. Yeah. And that's stunning to see someone show up someday and say, hey, I saw you give a talk or I saw you argue a motion seven years ago or whatever. Would you be interested in helping out on this project? You're not thinking back then that I'm going to argue this motion well because someone's going to call me seven years later. But that's how it works. Or you came down off the podium and somebody had a nice word for you after a speech and they remembered that you were kind enough to talk with them for a second. And lawyers who make it difficult for others end up making it more difficult for themselves. And I'll say it again. We all know how to fight. The good ones know when. I mean, John, you knew Gene Buckley for Absolutely. I mean, if that guy ever had a crossword with another lawyer, it is unknown to me. Me too. And yet had the respect of everybody. I worked with Gene at Evans and Dixon. I know that that's the way he was in the firm, outside the firm. You know, he's an amazing lawyer and human being. The lawyers had to learn how to abide by the uh, crosswalk stoplights because he didn't cross the street until it said walk. And a lot of us wanted to cheat. But when you're walking with him and someone asked him, like, are you always this careful? And he said, a juror might be watching me. And if they see me violating even a simple traffic light, they might think that the law doesn't mean something to me. This moment we just had, every story like that will be gone in a generation unless we tell stories about each other and the things we've seen each other do. And so this is good for young lawyers and for the posterity to follow. What a great example he was for all of us. Yeah. He really was. So we've got, I just want to hit on a couple more, Brad, before we finish up. Surely. 47, learn, learn, learn. Yeah. Keep your eyes open, your mouth shut. Keep your antenna up. Everything that happens is changing you, whether you realize it or not. As a young lawyer, you're getting flecks of gold. One thing that I learned back in the day when there were war rooms in law firms and boxes of documents and foam core was coming in and the big blow ups and the walls were covered with paper taped to it and the black board was uh, covered with all kinds of notes and outlines. And you watch experienced lawyers prepare for trial and you just pick up things from that, like how to gauge risk. You know, here's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to start the cross-examination of this expert with this question. Is there anything else you want to say? Now, that's sticking your head in the lion's mouth. And if I'm a first-year associate, I may not have the guts to do that because there's risk that it's going to work out badly. But great lawyers, especially great litigators, are courageous and brave, but they also know how to handicap the risk. And extraordinary results always follow from people willing to take risk. 
And watching a lawyer prepare for a trial, there is no substitute for it. The things you see, the things you hear, nuggets that are shared with you, like here's the rule or here's what we should be doing. In one of those sessions, we were talking apropos of nothing, I guess, but I was told, don't mistake the rules of litigation for the technique of litigation. Just because it's a rule doesn't mean that's the technique. Every word and opening statement doesn't have to follow the evidence will be, even though that's what it needs to be. You can take that out. Don't mistake the rules for the technique. So, Brad, you end with what I think is a fantastic conclusion, telling us all we really don't need to remember the rules. We just need to follow certain basic handful of things. Yeah. I mean, look, boil everything down that I've learned as a lawyer in 60 years, things distill. You know, be nice to people. Work hard. And John, you know this. It is impossible to over-prepare for a trial. Care about your clients. Have fun. And I'm a big believer in that advice to have fun because it's a pretty good indication of how you're doing. Because if a cross-examination is going well in court, my job's fun. If a cross-examination is going badly, it is whatever the exact opposite of fun is. If I'm uh, writing well and I'm getting pages out and I know I'm making progress and I'm finding the right cases, I'm having fun. And if I'm really struggling, I know I'm not doing well. So the fun meter, if you will, is a pretty good indication of how you're doing and what kind of coworker you are. And if you see folks in your firm who aren't, help them. So you end by saying it all boils down to work hard, work well, work smart, and be nice. Yes, Great it does. stuff. Great well, stuff. Thanks. So the 48 Secret Rules of Lawyering by Brad Winters. And as Brad said, if you all want a copy of this, let us know and we'll figure out a way to get it to you. Hey, my fun meter was uh, looking pretty good today. This has been a great conversation. Well, I hope so. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks. Great stuff. Yeah, that's very kind of you. Thank you for joining us on several episodes. Well, and thank you all again on behalf of all of us out here. And as I said, I've listened to a bunch of these and you're doing a great service. And I think even you don't know how great, and none of us do, but in 20 or 30 years when you've got a real library here and people want to know how it was and the oral traditions of our practice here. This is something of value you're creating, not talking about myself, but certainly the things that I was told and hopefully passed on here. And you'll be part of that library. Thank Thanks. you so much. Well, Brad, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure spending time with you. And I mean that sincerely. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.